Good evening. I'm Marcus Leader, and I would like to invite you on a journey of discovery as I pull back the veil and give you a glimpse of the multiverse through the eyes of a Toltec shaman. So sit back, relax, turn up the volume, and turn down the lights. You're now listening to The Shaman's Brew. And I'm going to start this show out with a little moody blues to kind of put you in the mood. So sit back and listen to Your Wildest Dreams.
Hello and welcome to the Shaman's Brew. In honor of the second edition release of Rosemary Ellen Guiley's Encyclopedia of Vampires and Werewolves, I'm going to be presenting an interview that Tracy Savage and I did with Rosemary on this very topic. But first, starting with this show, I am introducing a new segment focusing on disaster preparedness for the coming Earth changes. There has been a lot of media hype over the last few years about the Mayan calendar in 2012 and other end-of-the-world scenarios. Personally, I don't believe the end of the world or humanity is even remotely close. However, I do believe that our planet is beginning to go through cyclical changes as a result of geologic evolution and the influences of localized space weather primarily from the sun. Natural disasters such as earthquakes, volcanic eruptions, tsunamis, floods, hurricanes and tornadoes are not uncommon and are generally localized events. While we have yet to experience a global disaster affecting the entire planet, we cannot rule out that possibility. One example of this kind of global catastrophe could occur with the eruption of a supervolcano such as the Yellowstone caldera. This type of event would create a climate change that would usher in a new ice age in as little as one year. Another more likely event would come from the sun in the form of a mass coronal ejection of highly charged particles. While this does happen routinely, it rarely affects life here on Earth. But should a massive eruption occur, it could throw our planet and our technology back a hundred years in a matter of days. The following story was released by the scientific community and might help you understand this scenario a little better. Is called Getting Ready for the Next Solar Storm. In September 1859, on the eve of a below-average solar storm, the sun unleashed one of the most powerful storms in centuries. The underlying flare was so unusual, researchers still aren't sure how to categorize it. The blast peppered the Earth with the most energetic protons in half a millennia, inducing electrical currents that set telegraph offices on fire and sparked the northern lights over Cuba and Hawaii. This week, officials have gathered at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. to ask themselves a simple question. What if it happens again? A similar storm today might knock us for a loop, says Leka Guhata Gatera, a solar physicist at NASA headquarters. Modern society depends on high-tech systems such as smart power grids, GPS, and satellite communications, all of which are vulnerable to solar storms. As 2011 unfolds, the sun is once again on the eve of a below-average solar cycle. At least that's what forecasters are saying. The Carrington event of 1859, named after astronomer Richard Carrington, who witnessed 
the instigating flare, reminds us that strong storms can occur even when the underlying cycle is nominally weak. In 1859, the worst case scenario was a, a day or two without telegraph messages and a lot of puzzled sky watchers on tropical islands. In 2011, the situation would be much more serious. An avalanche of blackouts carried across continents by long-distance power lines would last for weeks to months as engineers struggled to repair the damaged transformers. Planes and ships couldn't trust their GPS units for navigation. Banking and financial networks might go offline, disrupting com commerce in a way unique to the information age. According to a 2008 report from the National Academy of Sciences, a century-class solar storm could have the economic impact of 20 Hurricane Katrinas. So, my question to all of you is what would you do should this happen again, and are you prepared to write out the devastating consequences? I can tell you right now that better than 90% of the population is not prepared for this type of event, and many may not even survive it. This is why I have decided to bring this segment into the show so that if I help even a single family to write out any possible earth changes, then it would have been well worth my time and efforts. Because there are many aspects of preparedness, I am not going to be able to cover it in a single show, and so with each segment I will pick a topic and then teach and guide you how to weather through the facets of survival. Tonight I am going to talk a little bit about one of the most important aspects of survival, communication and the loss of it. Should a solar storm, like the one that happened in 1859, occur again, one of the first things you are going to lose is power and communication. Forget about trying to use your phone, because when the power grid goes down across the country, so does your phones, and yes, this includes cell phones. You will have no clue what is even going on because there will be no television and very little radio communication on, pub on the public airways. You won't be able to call for help if you're injured or even check on your family, even if they're just across town, let alone in another state. So is there any way you can prepare for this and remain in contact with the outside world? There's only one way, and that is if you own an amateur radio or a high-quality CB radio with uh, single sideband or SSB capabilities. These radios will still work because they are self-contained and do not require cell phone towers or outside internet connections. There are several people who own these type of radios worldwide, and should something like this happen, you have an excellent chance of reaching help or reaching someone that can relay information for you. Amateur radios would be the best, but they are extremely expensive, often costing hundreds and even thousands of dollars. Plus, you cannot use one 
without first getting a license to use them, which can be quite involved and requires an understanding of basic electronics and radio theory. A better way to go would be to purchase a very high quality CB radio with the proper antenna and SSB or single sideband capabilities. These can be mounted in your car or truck to take with you or be mounted and used from your home. For our purposes, the vehicle type would be better for mobility and the fact that it can be powered from your vehicle battery. With this type of high-end radio, you can communicate with other CB users up to 30 or 40 miles away and using the SSB feature you can even skip on the ionosphere at times and talk to others hundreds of miles away. However, if you choose as I have to buy this kind of radio, do not make the mistake of buying a cheap CB radio from your local dealers. You can get these cheap ones for anywhere from $70 to $200 but they are not going to give you the type of power or sensitivity you are going to need to make a difference. With many of these radios, you'll be lucky to get out of your neighborhood. So, what kind of CB radio should you get? Luckily, I've done all the research for you, and I'm even going to give you the web address and person to talk to about helping you secure this part of your disaster preparedness program. A new friend of mine named Scotty from California recently hooked me up with the most awesome and powerful CB radio you can buy. The radio is called the Flamethrower and it is a legally modified Galaxy DX959 which you can buy from Scotty and his associates. Because of time restraints, I cannot go into every technical detail about what makes this radio so different from other CB radios, but I will touch on the highlights, and I will post all the information on my website, including the links where you can reach Scotty and uh, also see these amazing radios. Just go to www.theshamansbrew.com and click on Disaster Preparedness, and you will find all this information. Also, do not be confused if other people tell you that all CB radios operate at 4 watts of power, so it doesn't matter what you get. This is not true. There's a lot more to power and transmitting capabilities than just the, the legal 4 watt uh, limit. I would uh, also recommend buying an Apollo linear amplifier to complement this radio and by increasing its range and you know, even further. Scotty also offers these to his customers. So, what's so special about a flamethrower? First, it's the only affordable performance-built DX radio. Custom-built radios are priced at $365 and up and offer less performance than a flamethrower. They start with your newly purchased Galaxy DX959 and Replace germanium detector diodes with superior quality Scotty hot carrier diodes, dramatically increasing the receiver's sensitivity. Next, they replace the DC power amplifier regulator from 60 watt 7 amp max dissipation to upgrade it to a 100 watt 12 amp rated version. Then they replace the noise blanker diodes with metal to silicon fast switching diodes eliminating engine ignition noises and alternator whine. Next they replace the first stage amplifier for more signal 
and less static noise for receiving distant stations. Then they replaced the hot running 10 watt audio frequency amplifier with cool running 40 watt rated upgraded AF amplifier for clear 100% modulation with a stock microphone. Then they replaced the audio AF and RF stages of their components with new upgraded high-performance parts as required and precision tune. All new upgraded parts are expertly mounted directly to the circuit board using only the highest quality silver alloy solder. Next they adjust the critical driver and final bias current. In addition the clarifier is then unlocked then they silicone seal the internal plug and socket wire connectors preventing loose connections in high vibration environments. Your flamethrower is built for one thing performance. No stock CB ever made outperforms a flamethrower. The technical specs prove it and that's a documented fact. You can own one of these radios for only $285. Like I said, you can find out more about these radios by going to my webpage where you will find all of Scotty's contact information or you can go to ebay.com and search flamethrower CB radio and it will bring up the radios he has for sale. Scotty is a great guy to deal with and you can trust him completely to help you both before and after the sale. Be sure to tell them that Marcus sent you. In the next episode of Disaster Preparedness, I'm going to talk about one of the most important aspects of survival, water and food. Some of what you're going to hear may be information that you have never considered. And now I present our interview with Rosemary Ellen Guiley about her new second edition release of the Encyclopedia of Vampires and Werewolves. Good evening, I'm Marcus Leader, and I would like to invite you on a journey of discovery as I pull back the veil and give you a glimpse of the multiverse through the eyes of a Toltec shaman. So sit back, relax, turn up the volume, and turn down the lights. You're now listening to The Shaman's Brew. This is Marcus Leder with the Shaman's Brew, and I have Tracy Savage with me in this special edition of uh, the Shaman's Brew and Savage Science. Welcome to the show, Tracy. Hi, Marcus. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great. <laughs> I like I like to 
to thank you, everybody, for uh, tuning in to the special broadcast with uh, Tracy Savage and myself as we combine our shows, uh, The Shaman's Brew and Savage Science, in this uh, two-hour special interview with the incredible and lovely Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Uh, we're going to be talking about one of my favorite subjects, vampires. We're going to bring Rosemary on the show in just a minute. But before we get started, let me tell you a little bit about our guest tonight. Unless you are new to the paranormal or have been living in a cave in outer Mongolia, you're probably familiar with Rosemary and her work, but, uh, but just in case, Rosemary Ellen Guiley is a leading expert on the paranormal and supernatural. She conducts original field investigations of haunted and mysterious sites. She has written more than 40 books, including nine encyclopedias and hundreds of articles in print on a wide range of paranormal, spiritual, and mystic topics, and possesses an exceptional knowledge in the field. She has approximately one million copies in print. Her encyclopedias on ghosts and spirits, angels, vampires and werewolves, magic and alchemy, witchcraft, demons, dreams, mystical and paranormal experience, and saints are considered essential sources for authors, researchers, film and documentary producers, and paranormal investigators. Her work has been translated into 14 languages and has been selected by major book clubs around the world. She appears in television programs, documentaries, and docudramas with paranormal themes and makes numerous media and lecture appearances, including colleges and universities. Rosemary is also a frequent guest on Coast to Coast AM with George Norrie. Uh, he's the leading nighttime syndicated talk show. And uh, she's also co-authored a book with George on spirit communication called Talking to the Dead, published by Tor Books. In particular, she researches interdimensional entity contact experiences involving entities such as shadow people, aliens, mysterious beings and creatures, angels, fairies, jinn, and demons. She also researches documentation of interdimensional portals using innovative photography and real-time spirit communication devices. And with that, I'd like to welcome Rosemary Ellen Guiley to the show. Hello, Rosemary. Hi, Marcus and Tracy. Thank you for such a wonderful introduction. Oh, it's hmm. our pleasure. Hey, it's, uh, it, it's, it's always very interesting speaking with you and uh, discussing these topics. So it's, it's, it's really an honor having you on the show. Well, thank Absolutely. you. And, and I'm just delighted to talk about vampires because of all the topics that I've researched over the years, they are one of my favorite. I'm often asked to pick a favorite, and I can't single anything, any one thing out as the always favorite, but vampires are right up there. They have a fascinating folklore. We uh, are now looking at uh, living vampire subcultures with mythology in the making. The vampire keeps reinventing itself, and... Uh, no other entity in our supernatural lore is as versatile, as pervasive, and as fascinating as the vampire. Yeah, it's it's always been one of my favorite topics too. I think a lot of it is from you know my childhood. I grew up with uh, the horror movies, and uh, I'm even old enough to have watched uh, the original Dark Shadows. You know, it's it's 
first uh, soap opera you know, I ever encountered. But, uh, you know, I got hooked on that. But uh, it's it's something that's always fascinated me. And, and it seems to be, you know, spreading worldwide, too. I don't know what the exact allure of the the vampire. You know, I know with a lot of people, it's it's um, like, in, especially with the movies these days, it's it's a sensual type of creature. It's mysterious, uh, very sophisticated, and and I, you know, I don't know exactly if if other people are seeing the same type of thing in uh, vampires. Or I didn't know what you thought about that, Rosemary. You know, why is it so popular? Well, since we've had the twilight explosion and the, um, the the whole new phenomenon of young adult vampires, and, you know, we've got, uh, not a, in addition to, to Twilight, the Vampire Diaries, Vampire Academy, the Blue Bloods, and similar things. So Twilight is definitely the big international phenomenon. I've been getting mail from all over the world from people. And you know where a lot of it comes from? And these are from people who think that these sorts of vampires are the real deal and they want to go out and meet these vampires. A lot of it comes from India, Pakistan, and Turkey. Oh, really? Huh? That's, that's, uh, that's interesting. They, these people yeah. actually believe these, these stories, that they exist like they are portrayed in the movies? There's certainly a lot of curiosity about vampires, and most of the email that I get internationally like that uh, ask me, are these vampires real, and if so, where can I meet them? Or they just start out assuming that they're real, that they just say they want to meet vampires uh, like the Twilight vampires. (laughs) Uh, And um, it's... Well, these are are very repressive societies, so it would make sense that they're that they're looking for something that's outside of of their mindset, don't you think? Well, this, um, this latest iteration of the vampire that's taken the young adult market by storm um, has, has turned the vampire literally into a superhero, very uh, kind of gallant superhero, uh, where the good van there are bad vampires, of course, that go around doing nasty things, but the good vampires are uh, really gallant. Uh, and quite noble and pure of intent. They, they use their vampiric superpowers for good, not for evil. And that's something that our ancestors, especially from Eastern Europe, never would have recognized. Today's fictional vampire would be totally unrecognizable as a vampire to people even a few hundred years ago. It was a loathsome, loathsome thing that uh, didn't make it to the afterlife, a human spirit that became contaminated, unholy, and was able to return from the grave to do terrible things to the living without exception. Now, how did these uh, these ancient stories, the lore of the vampire, uh, especially in, in other countries, how did that all come about? Uh, you know, for example, who was the first vampire, or is there someone identified as the, the very first vampire? We, we certainly have lore go back, going back to ancient times, and a lot of it uh, came out of the Mediterranean. The vampire cult has uh, some ancient roots in um, Greece and Italy, for example. Uh, a lot of what we know about the vampire comes from very old pagan cults in Eastern Europe. Humanity has always had a, a fear of death and a fear of the grave, so to speak. We wonder what happens to the soul 
uh, after death, and every society has beliefs about an afterlife and the transit of, of a soul into the afterlife. Uh, and with that transition from life uh, to beyond life and into death, there's this whole area uh, of uncertainty. What happens to someone who doesn't quite make it? And uh, we find in every culture, going back to ancient times, a lot of about what happens to these demonic uh, sorts of entities. Hmm. That's um, so. Yeah, that, that, wait, well, they, they go become ahead. demonic. I, I should explain that that uh, the perception is that the, the the soul or the spirit can become contaminated by demons or sort of demonic-like in behavior. Uh. Okay. Uh, uh, in caught in in this nether world between life and death, and in some beliefs this period is temporary, and in others it lasts until human beings put an end to it, uh, and that's the case we find with Eastern Europe European vampire that uh, when this soul was was caught between life and and the afterlife. Uh, it was often up to the living to identify the corpse that was sustaining this unnatural state of existence and uh, put an end to it by destroying that vehicle, the body itself. So there were beings that were vampiric, but not necessarily demonic, as demons are, are more of a, a modern projection of how we, we view the behavior um, but they, there was a lot of cultures that had vampiric creatures that they didn't necessarily have a belief in demons, per se, the way that we, we define them today. Uh, well, Is this what the, you're saying? Um, uh, you could consider demons to be very old and universal. Uh, that is, various classes of interfering spirits, usually on the negative side. And our view, the Christian view of, of demons, uh, the predominant modern Western view of demons is something I call the satanic demon. It's a very narrow slice of the demonic universe. We consider demons to be fallen angels who work under uh, an entity named Satan who try and subvert the soul in, into damnation. But outside of Christianity and going back to ancient times, demons covered quite a, a wider territory. They They were... Uh, varying classes of mild to, to very malevolent uh, entities who could interfere in the ability of human beings to pursue a prosperous life uh, by causing uh, disaster, disease, misfortune, uh, a ruination of your livelihood, uh, and, and those sorts of things. Uh, those would be demons. Uh, and every mythology has vampiric demons. Now, there are different kinds of vampires. We have... Um, the view of the Eastern European vampire cults that most vampires are the returning human dead that become uh, subverted and twisted in, in their uh, transit to the afterlife and become contaminated as a result of that. And in some beliefs, literally become taken over by demons. Um, there are many beliefs about vampires. Another kind of, of vampire is a non-human entity that would be classed as a demon. That is, a spirit who preys upon uh, living things, human and animal, uh, to subsist on the blood or the life force in order to sustain itself. And in the case of, of some South American vampires, they take the body fat 
Um, uh, these are um, beliefs of people who live high in the Andes where body fat is very important to survival. And so their vampiric demons, uh, take they're not interested in the blood, they take the body fat. And then we have, uh, finally, another class of vampires that you would call living vampires. And in various folklore traditions, these are people that would be called witches or sorcerers uh, in some cultures. That is, people who from birth uh, have uh, supernatural power uh, and can use it in um, malevolent ways if they so choose. So all of these things sort of form this, this big, huge mix of... Uh, what vampires are, and and there are many beliefs that uh, describe vampires, and and uh, without agreement from one culture to another in terms of what vampires precisely are, but basically we can say it's some sort of spirit that um, depletes living things in order to sustain itself. Now. Before we we move on, uh, you mentioned the the fat vampires, and that that kind of intrigues me. I wanted to uh, uh, just clarify that a little bit. Is is this a a myth uh, or lore of that area, or are there actual modern day attacks on uh, on people's fat? And you know, are they uh, the type of attack where the the person is killed as a result of it, or you know? I, I, this this is something new. I haven't run into fat vampires before. Fat vampires. Yeah, it might like be a new diet craze. Diet, the, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Take mine, please. Yeah, everybody needs a fat <laughs> exactly. vampire. Yeah. We'll be all standing in line. It's a new form of liposuction. <laughs> the, um, well, the anthropological literature uh, from researchers who go into remote areas to to study lifestyles and, and mythologies and folklore beliefs, uh, these are contemporary beliefs in very rural areas that these sorts of entities can still prey upon people. And like our Eastern European ancestors, people who would have, for example, unexpected deaths or uh, die of hypothermia or wasting disease, um, might be considered to be under a vampire attack, taking okay. uh, the body's nutrients um, in, in in very dangerous ways. And interestingly, the folklore has evolved into modern times. Now, in earlier beliefs, um, people thought that the vampires took the, the fat, and what they didn't use themselves, what they had leftover fat, they sold it off. <laughs> underground fat market, Uh, and and there were these prevalent beliefs that the fat was used to make church bells. I don't know how you make church bells with body fat, but... a little weird. One of those peculiar (laughs) beliefs. But in today's times, the beliefs are that the fat is used to pay off national debt uh, and Uh, airplane airplane fuel. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So we have very enterprising fat vampires, I guess, in an underground... I guess so, they're... Entrepreneurial vampires. <laughs> <laughs> and and this was in what area? You said it was in South America. South America, uh, mostly in Peru, in the Andes Mountains. And okay. there are a number of vampires. They have different names, uh, but they all basically do the same thing. They steal the body fat. Because there there are other uh, 
we're uh, when we think of vampires, we think of like a, a human form, and then they have uh, you know animals that are associated with uh, the shape shifting sort of idea. Um, but they they do have in many cultures, African, Asian, and South American uh, scattered up and down you know the the hemisphere, um, different animals that would would take uh, life forces like you were talking about but not necessarily just the blood. I mean, they had uh, uh, spirits that would, um, that were, the, well, they were the spirits of uh, people that died in childbirth, and then they would come back uh, and steal children, and they would enter into uh, liaisons with the living, and then they would drive them crazy. And that was in the Aztec uh, mythology. And they then there's also the Mapuche in southern Chile, and they actually had a blood-sucking snake. So it's in 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 Africa, they had an awful lot of animal-human uh, combinations as well. So um, a lot of times, it seemed like they would take from uh, nature, and then they would they would anthropomorphize these ideas onto these animals and then create this mythological being that is vampiric, but I guess now we're just attaching the, the label of vampire onto them. And then, of course, you're saying that if they're fat vampires, it's whatever's in, endemic to that area as being a life force idea. Am I, am I following this right? Yeah, we find uh, different... Um sort of iterations of the vampire in various cultures depending upon what might be most threatening to a human being's ability to survive and thrive. And okay. some of these vampires are hybrids. You know, they're animal-human hybrids uh, or they're shapeshifters. Some of the ones that are non-human have grotesque demonic uh, appearances that are described. A fat vampire, for example, from the Andes is usually de described as a mysterious man wearing a long trench coat. It, it's kind of evoking the idea of stranger, you know, the mysterious stranger who comes in. Um, and as you said, there are, there are other vampires that, that take more animalistic forms. Um, now, in Eastern Europe, uh, and I, you know, so many of our contemporary beliefs about vampires out of European beliefs and also from the Mediterranean, uh, the vampire could, uh, could take your blood, your energy, uh, your money, uh, could ruin your crops, kill your livestock. Uh, I even came across stories of uh, bee vampires who, who uh, if you were a beekeeper, the vampires would come in and, and uh, render the bees incapable of making honey, which would be your livelihood. If you were a baker, they would take the uh, yeast and leavening out of your bread so that it would be tasteless and worthless. So uh, this pervasive idea that we can be at the mercy of something that can destroy our ability to live uh, and thrive, you know, survive and thrive, I guess would be the, the way to put it. Uh, it seems to be pervasive to human beings since ancient times. Mm -hmm. So it's it's not just blood and energy. They uh, they pretty much take anything that we have of value. Exactly. Right. Whatever is of, of value to us. And I, I ran across stories about vampires taking the beauty off your face. Oh, your, your youthful beauty. Uh, uh, yes. And so um, far more than blood. And, of course, it's the blood-drinking vampire that 
we became so fascinated with in, in the West, and that uh, that's the uh, the monster who entered our popular culture. Mm. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot there with the uh, imagery too, uh, blood. And now we have the sexy vampire, so that's probably a lot of the draw also. How did that become mixed in, that there's always an undertone of, of sensuality and sexuality with these characters? And I, I find that in a lot of the last couple hundred years anyways, um, it has really turned into this, uh, this sort of um, presence and of course, you know, media and Hollywood just ran with it. But going back into those times, there was what? Where did it turn from something that's got this proboscis sucking sort of animalistic thing into a more sophisticated idea? When did that transfer into our psyches? I mean, collectively, because this is not. It sort of seems like it's a phenomena that sort of. Uh, 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 evolved all sort of at the same time globally, you know, with all of its own little characteristics in whatever pocket you're talking about. Did, was there a time that it seemed that that particular idea, it came in the night when you're vulnerable? Is that is that where psychologically you think it played into it? Or, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? I, I think we can look to the early 18th century as the point of origin of this transmutation uh, from the horrific into the glamorous. Uh, and that's when Western Europe started finding out about the vampire cult in Eastern Europe. Uh, and, and it was originally this, this sort of horrific thing that these ignorant peasants did. You know, they went around digging up rotting corpses looking for certain signs of this entity called the vampire uh, and uh, as a way of explaining bad things that were happening to people, especially in terms of their livelihood and their health and even their lives, uh, and then mutilating them and burning them. It was, it was just a very bizarre, horrific practice. Well, when reports of this started filtering out, uh, mostly from about the 1740s, there were accounts of vampires before that, but it seemed that the time was right uh, in, in terms of the ability of people to, fa to be fascinated by the vampire and, and for it to become immediately incorporated into the performing arts. And Europeans were very fast to jump on that, followed by the English, to put this, this horrific character into their plays, their music, comedy, short stories, poems. Uh, and... It, the vampire was a wonderful stage device because it just mesmerized audiences. It was so exotic, so dangerous. Uh, and uh, then, of course, we have uh, Bram Stoker, who uh, really made a, a big turning point in the vampire and literature, 1897, with his novel Dracula, where um, Dracula enters very proper society in England. England is a symbol for the civilized world. Uh, it was still empire then and represented the height of um, intellect, manners, arts, um, military might, the greatest thing in the civilized world, and this foreign uh, threat uh, in terms of the vampire uh, threatens the stability of that world. 
And in order to do that, Dracula had to infiltrate himself into that society uh, in very quiet ways. So the vampire became this um, this image of someone who could pass in high society, uh, the, the mysterious European nobleman who was properly dressed, who had all the right manners, but had this horrible secret to him. And that image was further reinforced when the novel was translated onto the stage and from the stage then into the film. And the rest, I think, we can say is history in terms of, of how the vampire has become increasingly glamorous uh, as other artists and, and writers and dramatists have reinterpreted this image. Would you say that it was uh, primarily masculine? In, I mean, we think of Dracula now, automatically you think of a male but in the old lore, a lot, most of them seem to be feminine. And then it sort of like became this renaissance idea. It seems like the vampire appears wherever there's a, a well, it goes through an evolution into this, um, this more uh, freeing, I guess. I don't even, I don't even know what word I'm looking for. Like a, like it, it, it frees them from their uh, restrictions in society. So it sort of represents a little bit of a, of a, of a change into a more progressive idea. And then uh, the society's following that. It's sort of as a representative, I guess, of, of them trying to break out of the way that they were. You said that the, the Europeans or the, the English anyway, the British were very, uh, you know, they, they were very status quo and they were very organized. And then they had this thing that was becoming so pervasive with their media, which, of course, represents their their subconscious desire to break free of, of, of all that and be unrestrained. Because, I mean, who, who could actually restrain a vampire? It's un, unrelenting lust and passion and, you know, following that those instincts where in their society they weren't allowed to have those things in Victorian era. I mean, they were very, you know, uh, stiff upper lip and high collars and all of that. But yet in their media and their stage and their, their writings, once Bram Stoker hit, I mean, it was just like the craze, like you said. What would account for them to glam on to this particular ideology so heavily and so, I mean, it, it, like you said, it's the most popular creature in so many different societies, and now it's happening over in the Middle East. What accounts for that when there's there's a society that has a particular pervasive um, um, squishing down of natural uh, instincts? Do you think that it's a representative of the renaissance of people following their own desires? like repressive uh, morals, mores, and, and ethics? Well, the, um, the literary vampire certainly has become symbolic of a, a lot of different kinds of expressions of trends in society. Uh, the, the pagans from Europe and other parts of the world who dealt with the vampire threat uh, as part of their daily life uh, surely did not see them that way. They were a threat to um, to the ability to, to live, and vampires could equally be male or female. It really didn't matter. They were a returning horror from the grave, and it, it really didn't have 
um, much at all to do with uh, people's place in society. But when the vampire entered uh, our uh, literary streams and our performing arts, it became a symbol and a metaphor for all sorts of things. And we see a number of streams of development in, in different directions. Now, uh, before Dracula, uh, one of the most dominant literary vampires was uh, Sheridan Le Fanu's Carmilla, uh, which he wrote in 1872 uh, that preceded Stoker by about 25 years. And it was about a female vampire who preyed uh, upon women and men alike. And there are uh, even interpretations of some lesbian overtones in the story. Uh, for Stoker, the vampire became uh, a wonderful tool uh, of the ability to upset um, high society of order, you know, this, this chaos that could come in, infiltrate uh, the order of established things, of upper-class things. And the, um, the blood drinking and the attacks on, on the women victims certainly had sexual overtones that uh, were not uh, capable of being expressed in more explicit ways, as you pointed out, Tracy, in Victorian England. And those sorts of themes have followed our literature and performing arts on down through the decades, where, um, for example, in, uh, in, in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, when Hammer Films uh, in England was at its peak uh, doing blood and guts horror movies, uh, there were ample quantities of uh, heaving bosoms along with the vampire attacks. It was always, you know... <laughs> Uh, Christopher Lee's <laughs> red cape uh, after women. He didn't seem to attack men so much, but he sure liked oh, ladies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've got them all. <laughs> so the I do. Vampire, then, you know, the, the literary critics have uh, examined this literary vampire from so many angles of um, feminism, uh, repressed sexuality, uh, the upset of, of order, uh, ideas about death. Uh, and, and now we have this, this gallant vampire, this increasingly gallant vampire. You know, we, we went into the, the sexy vampire in Paranormal Romance, and Anne Rice you know, certainly uh, refined that image quite a bit, the wealthy, sexy, um, but still dangerous vampire. And, and now we've got uh, vampires who just seem to be kind of Mr. Nice Guys. Uh, and uh, this... This especially appeals to to the young adult market. Um, one interesting thing that I've noticed about how the um, the male vampires approach their their female heroines, and that's usually the case. Even though in some many of these stories they're female vampires as as well as male, but the dominant couple is uh, a mortal woman and uh, a vampire male, and she is the one who is in control of the sexuality. Uh, he has her up on a pedestal. He thinks uh, that, you know, she's above every other woman on the planet. He will do her no wrong, and he will never uh, push himself on her because he, he doesn't want to hurt her in any way. So she's the one who uh, finally falls irrevocably in love with him and insists on consummating the relationship. 
and we see that trend repeated, not in every case, but it, it seems to be a dominant appeal in this new young adult vampire. Yeah, and I think that quality yeah, that is being portrayed by the, the new vampires is something that a lot of the women especially you know, are, are falling for. You know, the, uh, not just the sophistication, but the devotion, you know, he, you know, the vampire would die, you know, to protect her, that type of thing. It's and kind of a combination of James Dean and Sir Galahad. A <laughs> <laughs> hero worship thing. Mm-hmm. Well, but he's you know, still these... an outsider. He's still dangerous. He's still yeah. foreign, the other, yep. the outsider, but he's chivalric on yeah, top it, of it when he's just fixated on a, on a female. Just can't resist well, a, partic- him. a particular female, because the other females are always expendable. It's sort of that um, yeah. virgin whore idea again. I know I shouldn't have probably said that, but you know it's a family show. <laughs> but we are talking about this. But that's the same idea. Remember, he has like a stable where they've got all these, you know, myriad of, of beautiful sexy women and they're sort of not ever the number one wife kind of idea the 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 harem idea i guess you could say but then there there's that one captivating i guess uh, stoker did a great job with the mina character and that's sort of representative of a lot of women's psyches that she'll be the one that can tame the beast you know at the same time mixing it with the hero worship maybe right Hmm. Right. We have a lot yeah. of psychological so, trappings. <laughs> so it's it's a curious trend here, and uh, on one hand, it seems uh, like it's destroying the vampire because um, this new vampire is so unvampire-like. How can you even call it a vampire? It just has fangs, and some of them drink blood. The good guys don't drink human blood, hmm. uh, and. It's, yet it's a trend that we've seen happening uh, for some time. I mean, Marcus, you mentioned Dark Shadows. Yeah. And Barnabas Collins, you know, started out in that being very dark and threatening and, mm-hmm. and evil. And by the time the, the series was ended, he was Mr. Good Guy. Yeah. Uh, and was looking, you know, he had the um, Julia, you know, the doctor who was mm-hmm. uh, trying to find the cure for him. But he started helping people. Uh, so it's, it's a trend that's been in the works. And, and now I find that young people who are totally unfamiliar with the earlier movies, the Hammer films, uh, some of them aren't even familiar with the vampire Lestat. Uh, they have no concept of, of what the early cinematic and, and literary vampires were, uh, let alone the, the folklore. Their whole definition of vampires is coming from this uh, contemporary film and fiction right now. Yeah, it, it's al- it, it's almost like um, the modern day authors and uh, movie producers are rewriting, you know, creating a new uh, myth or lore, you know, for the future. It, you know, it it's seems like to be the case, and uh, hard to know where where it's going to go. Uh, I mean, even Buffy. Uh, I was just thinking of her. The, the, the well, they were ugly there. Of vampires. <laughs> well, they were hor- horrific in the Buffy series. I mean, they kind of kept true to the stereotype or I guess the image that we had. And and you wanted 
the vampire slayer to slay the vampire and then she falls in love with angel and you're and you're thinking oh no i have to like one of them again you know and he is pretty cool and he got his own show even you know but yeah now they just sparkle and that's it yeah yeah. Well, I, I find it interesting that the, the creator of Twilight uh, had never read a vampire book or seen a vampire movie before she she wrote about her vampire wow. skin sparkles. And she, you, she had a dream in which um, there were entities called vampires and their skin glittered. And, and so she wrote a short story, which eventually be, uh, worked its way into the Twilight uh, novels. But here's someone who has no underpinnings in the vampire cult or the vampire uh, fictional culture at all, who's created an entirely new vampire. Now, just out of curiosity, uh, in any of your research, or I know you've traveled around the world and uh, doing a lot of this research, have you ever encountered any stories of sparkling vampires? I certainly have not. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> just, I had to... just wondering. Yes, I heard you laughing. <laughs> uh, as, yeah. as yet, I have not. Um... Okay. Well, <laughs> there may be. And this concludes part one. Thank you so much for joining me. And be sure to tune in for part two of this interview in my next show, along with my uh, disaster preparedness concerning food and water. This is Marcus Leder, and you have been listening to The Shaman's Brew on Jackalope Radio.